Good morning. I first want to say welcome to all of our visitors today. We're glad you chose to be with us and to be here for Bernie and Natalie and their family. Some of you are friends, some of you are family. It's great to have you. I didn't get to all of you. You guys were all up here like doing pictures and things, and I didn't want to disturb you. But I will say this. We're so glad to have you with us. And those of you who are here every week, we're glad to have you too. And I know some of you who came a little late, uh, you had to double park. And, you know, that's not often that we have to do that. Of course, you can fill up the back lot and park where you can on the street if, that, if you're able to. But we're just glad to have you. And uh, I will say that God has blessed us with a nice, wonderful, comfortable, warm sanctuary today to be able to gather in worship, in fellowship, to honor the Lord, to dedicate little Isabel, but also to be in God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're here together. We, we don't take it for granted. There are many people in this world that don't have the kind of support that Bernie and Natalie talked about today. They feel alone. They don't, they don't feel like they have an extended family, or maybe they don't have family in the area or at all. And so we, we're very grateful today and thankful for each other. We thank you for the support that you provide for each and every one of us through one one another. And, and so I pray that you continue to do that work in the hearts of your people here at Calvary Chapel for visitors to feel included and connected and their needs met. But I also pray that you continue to reach out to those who are outside the church to bring them to a safe place where they can come to know you and be loved in this crazy world in which we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are closing up a series within a series. We've been studying in the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, we've been going through chapters 2 and 3 for the last several weeks, actually months, looking at each of the letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches. The seven churches of proconsular Asia, where in western Turkey, these churches had been planted in sort of a rough circle The Lord wanted to speak to the people of those churches, and so he sent these letters through an angel to John, and then John forwarded that letter, those letters, this entire letter, this entire book, to those churches, and also published it abroad to all the churches. So this morning we're looking at the last of the seven letters, and it doesn't matter if you were not here for the first six, this morning's message is a powerful portion of Scripture, and it allows us to see the heart of God as it relates to a group of people in a church in a city called Laodicea. The thing about this group of people, they were not really who they were supposed to be. And we're going to see, and we've already prayed, and we're now going to get into the Word, but we're going to see that this city was an interesting city. It was a very wealthy city. But let's talk a little bit about the church in Laodicea. But before we do, you know what? Let's actually read the letter. We'll we'll start there. In the book of Revelation, which if you have your Bibles with us, or if you're not familiar, you certainly can turn to the very end and back up a couple of chapters, and you'll find yourself in Revelation chapter 3 and in verse 14. There we read, and these are Jesus' words, to the angel of the church or the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve or a medicine to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, plural, to the churches, to all of us. But this was a message that was tailored to a specific church in the first century, the church of Laodicea. And in order to understand the language that's used, you need to understand a little bit about the city of Laodicea. This has been true with every one of the seven letters. You know, we were talking last week about the church of Philadelphia and how it was a a city that knew something about tremors and earthquakes. And some of our brothers and sisters from California know that every once in a while you might feel that. And so when God spoke to the church of Philadelphia, he talked about stability and security. And they came from a city, interestingly enough, that, that, and I didn't mention this last week, but they came from a city that they, they changed the name of that city over and over again. And what does God say? I'm going to give you a new name, a final name. You're not going to keep changing your name. It was all about stability because the city knew something about instability. Well, this city, Laodicea, knew something about wealth and commerce. In fact, We know that the city was founded by a man by the name of Epaphras. And this is talked about in Paul's letter to the Colossians. So we do know that Epaphras and others visited this city probably shortly after 51 AD and planted a church in Laodicea. It was one of three churches in the area, Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And this was a church that was, uh, again, very wealthy, well-known. And Paul had actually written to this church in 62 AD, and he had never been there. And as far as we know, he hadn't made it to Colossae either, but he communicated with them. We know that much. But this city and the church in this city were not only wealthy, they were an industrial center producing garments and medicine or salve for the eyes. That's what they were known for, producing garments and medicinal eye salve. Now, this city had been destroyed by an earthquake as well, which were very common and still are in that part of the world in western Turkey. But the city was destroyed by an earthquake, but they were able to rebuild it, and they didn't even need Rome's help. They they had so much money, they were able to rebuild on their own, which is rare, especially during ancient times. But the city, again, extremely wealthy. They had extensive banking operations, and they were known for having a gold reserve. They had quite a bit of gold. So as we see the letter that Jesus sends to them, he refers to many of the things that they were familiar with. Gold, eye medicine, eye salve, garments, wealth. And the reason he uses these terms is these were things they were familiar with. You'll find that when God speaks to our hearts from his word, he speaks to us in a way that we can relate to. He doesn't speak to me the way he might speak to Carl or Kurt or Lindsay. He speaks to us in a way that we can understand. Now, sure, I can get something from this. I can be encouraged. 
And maybe I can relate to some of these things. But, but here's the thing. When God speaks to our hearts, it's always individual and powerful, appropriate, applicable. It makes me crazy when people say, oh, you know, I, I read the Bible. I don't really understand it. Or, you know, I really don't feel like God speaks to me. You know, God speaks to me a lot. Most of the time telling me things I did wrong or the things I shouldn't have said. Or the things I'm thinking of doing that I shouldn't do. I hear God's voice a lot. And I'll tell you this much. If we're open to the voice of God, the Holy Spirit will speak to us, but he will speak to us in a way that resonates with who we are. See, your relationship with God is personal. It's individual. You're not supposed to have the same relationship with God that I have. And if I try to make you like me, but boy, we don't need more of me in this world. We, we, got, we got one, that's enough. And one of you is good too, you know? And that's okay, and we want to stay in this place where we're the people that God has called us to be. So this church, a group of people who knew something of wealth, I think the United States can relate. I really do. Well, the other thing about this city, and this is important, the city had an aqueduct. If you've ever seen the ancient aqueducts, they were amazing feats of engineering, and using gravity, they would take water from one part of the area and bring it to another part of the area. And of course, all you need, and those of us who do plumbing know, all you need is a slight pitch and you got it. But in order to bring the water from a higher elevation down to a lower elevation, you had to have a steady, steady decline. You had to use gravity, and it was a wonderful feat of engineering, but these aqueducts, some of the ruins exist today. You look at them and you see these arches because, you know, they use stone. They didn't have poured concrete and steel beams. And some of these things are still around today. But the engineering required to go from one place to another very, very slowly declining in elevation so that when you get to the place where you receive the water, it's almost like having pressurized plumbing. Not quite, but close enough. So they had this aqueduct. It brought water across the valley by an inverted siphon of stone pipes. Stone pipes. So this is an amazing thing, and they knew something about that. So we'll see as we get through our study today, Jesus uses that to speak to their hearts. Now all that remains of this city today are ruins, including the remains of three early churches. But the church of Laodicea, and we saw this with each of the churches, was appropriately named. You see, the name Laodicea means the rights of the people. Or the people's rights. So about democracy or the, the right of people to govern themselves, the people's rights. Now, as we've gone through the letter, and we'll go through this slowly now, in verse 14, it's interesting. Obviously, this church had issues. Obviously, they had problems. And so when he writes to them, Jesus says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He chooses his words specifically for this group of people because, you see, Jesus is the final word and the authority over all the earth. So when people say, well, I have a right, have you ever found yourself saying that? I have a right. And thankfully, under the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights and other legislation, we actually do have rights. They're, they're eroding, but that tide is starting to turn now, and I'm very happy about that. And that's happened throughout the history of our nation. 
You have some people in power that are completely out of control, trying to take away the rights, and then eventually those cases and legislation make it through the courts, and the courts turn it around because there is a constitution. Despite what some people think, that's a very good thing, brothers and sisters. Believe me, I've been to Cuba. You don't want to live in Cuba. I've been to Venezuela. Not recently, but from what I see, you don't want to live in Venezuela. No offense to our Chinese brothers and sisters, I don't want to live in communist China. And I certainly don't want to live in North Korea. But what we do know is when you say, well, the people have rights, you're saying, well, my rights trump that of God and his will. I have a right. And we say that a lot in our country, and sometimes we have rights to do things that are wrong. Rights to do wrong. Well, here's the thing. Jesus speaks to this church by saying, I'm the amen. That is, he is the confirming voice of God in total agreement with the Father. So when someone says, well, I have a right to do this, he's the amen. He's the one that really can communicate what's right and what's wrong. And he says that to them. And he also says it this way, I'm the faithful and true witness. Now, when that language is used in the New Testament, the faithful and true witness has everything to do with Jesus' ability to reveal God in human flesh. Because he became, because as God he became a man, we call that the incarnation, he became a human being. So then he became the true and faithful witness to who God is. All right? So that's when you say the faithful and true witness, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of God in human flesh. And he says that to this church. He also says and shows us that he is unwilling to yield his authority as the ruler of his creation and the head of the church. And this church, the people's rights, needed to remember that. Churches today need to remember that God, Jesus Christ, is the head of the church. So when they get together as a synod or a diocese, or they get together as a denomination and they vote and they all have rights to do so, and they vote contrary to what Jesus' word has said to us, it's null and void as far as I'm concerned because Jesus is the amen, the faithful and witness revelation of God in human flesh. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the ruler of God's creation. It is not a democracy. So let's understand, Jesus speaks to this church making it clear to them, you can say, this is what we believe, even though historical Christianity has made it abundantly clear what's right and what's wrong. You can defy that, but Jesus reserves the right to tell you, guess what, you're wrong. He is the faithful and true witness. And he's not going to yield that authority as ruler. So here at Calvary Chapel, Jesus is the head of the church. We can't get together and take a vote, you know, 99 to 1 and decide to do something. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the amen. And when he speaks to this church, he corrects them. They needed correction, but he makes it clear. He corrects the people that he loves. So you might look at this letter and say, well, Jesus is really mean. He sounds hateful. Or you can say, like parents who raise their children properly, if you don't correct your children, we all pick up the pieces of your poor job of parenting when they become adults. Would you agree with that? I see some of these maniacs, and I say, where are the parents? And some, I'm not saying it's their fault, 
or even the parents' fault. Sometimes it's, it's not a matter of fault. It's just a matter of individuals have been raised like animals, so they act like animals. I know you can't call people animals. But some of the stuff I've seen lately in the news requires you to say animals. So, without getting into all of that, I just feel that it's very important that we recognize that when Jesus corrects a person, by the way, you don't correct anybody. God's word corrects people. So get out of this habit of thinking, well, you're wrong and I said so. No, 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 no. Jesus shows us what's right and what's wrong, and you have a choice to listen or not. And the fact, the mere fact that when someone does something that defies God's word, that a lightning bolt doesn't come down at that very moment and strike them dead, says that, you know what? God doesn't need you to correct that person. You present the truth, and we honor their ability to say no. Because God does. He gives them the choice. And we're saddened by the choices that some of our children and our loved ones make. But it doesn't give us the right, the people's rights, it doesn't give us the right to really correct them. Only God can do that correction, and he does. And this is a pretty harsh correction. But parents, have you ever had to discipline your children and it was a little harsh? Have you, are you going to be honest today? Are you going to, oh, no, I've never had to hit my child. Maybe some of you haven't. Praise God. I'm not talking abuse. But you know what? Here's the thing. Jesus, when he speaks to this church, says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. How many times my mom or dad would say that to me? I know what you're up to. I know what you've been up to. We haven't done anything. I heard all the racket before I came into this room. What got broken? Nothing. Well, what about that lamp? I don't know. It sort of fell off the table. One time, one of my brothers, who you've never met, that gets my brother Dave out of trouble. When my dad came down, he said, what happened to the lamp? And my brother, Chris, he said, I didn't do it. My leg did it. I thought that was a good excuse, actually. If you can get your parents to laugh, maybe you don't get a beating, you know? I grew up when you got a beating, okay? So anyway, here's the thing. I know your deeds. I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing, that you are neither cold nor hot. You're, neither, you're not really one or the other. You're kind of lukewarm. And, and that's, that's an analogy, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, that doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? It doesn't sound like a good thing because it isn't a good thing. Their work, that is the things they did, made the Lord sick. Have you ever found yourself even recently looking at what's going on in our world and says, that makes me sick? When I'm having breakfast in the morning, I used to have a ritual of watching the news while I made my smoothie and my eggs. And you know what? I'm going to get sick if I do that. So I stopped doing that. I still watch just enough. And then I start to get, and I'm done. It's bad. And we all know it. And hopefully it will get better very soon. I'm optimistic. But let's face it, things aren't going to get much better for very long before they get very bad and the Lord returns. And then it gets very good. Amen? Well, anyway, the Lord makes this clear. And the reason he uses the language about lukewarm water is their aqueduct that they built that I told you about, it had access to the hot springs. It had access to the cold springs. But by the time the water got to the city, it was lukewarm. 
And you could understand why. It had to travel a great distance through stone. So if it was hot, it cooled off. If it was cold, it warmed up. So when they built it, they probably thought, well, this would be great. We'll get that. You know how we got to go all the way up in the mountains to get the cold and then the, the hot springs? And I, have you ever been uh, to a place where there are hot springs? I was in Murrieta, California a couple of years ago, probably about 10 years ago now, maybe more. And uh, it was really neat to see on a chilly morning water that was actually too hot to touch coming out of the ground. Steam and everything, hot springs, really interesting. So they probably thought, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll build an aqueduct, get all this hot water in. We'll go running hot water. Oh, and you know that cold water from that part of the mountain? Well, let's get that cold water. All excited. Here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, my coffee right now could probably be described as lukewarm. Let me test. Yeah, I'm not going to spit it out on the carpet. Don't worry. But here's what I know. I know that I like it hot. I like it cold. I came in today. I had a cold brew. It's not an advertisement for cold brew. It's just I like cold brew. Now, please don't everybody bring a cold brew next Sunday. That happens. A pastor says, oh, I like cold brew. And it's like that time David said, I'd really like to have a drink from that well in uh, Bethlehem or Jerusalem. Uh, No, no. I came in and then uh, Mr. Frank handed me a hot coffee. Well, I had ice in my cold brew, and so it stayed cold. But this has gotten a little But hey, we got microwaves. They didn't have any of that stuff. So when that hot water arrived, it was lukewarm. When that cold water arrived, it was lukewarm. So you think they got the memo? What he was making clear is, you know, you want something. When you're looking for hot, you want hot. When you're looking for cold, you want cold. You want a cold drink in the summer. You want a hot drink on a brisk morning like this morning. But when it's lukewarm, you're disappointed. And that accurately describes how the people of Laodicea felt, but also how Jesus felt when he looked at what they did and didn't do and how they lived and what they were up to. Hot water on a cold day, cold water on a hot day, both very good, but lukewarm is disgusting pretty much on any day, and so were their actions. So was their lifestyle. And they relied on their own strength. They didn't rely on their own resources until, oh, excuse me, they relied on their own strength and they relied on their own resources. They didn't rely on God's resources. And when you rely on your own resources, when you rely on your own strength and not on God's strength and resources, you come up short. And we we learn here, this is interesting, look at verse 17 again with me. You say, I'm rich. When a person says, I'm rich, you know, I know rich people that say they're poor. I say that crying poverty. Oh, my goodness, the price of gas. Oh, my goodness, you're the price of heating oil, if you can get it. Oh, my goodness, the price of food. We say these things, and we cry. And let's be honest. I'm not happy either. I mean, my budget went up thousands of dollars this year, just like yours, because I heat my home with oil, and I have to put gas in my car, and I need to buy food at the supermarket. We're all in the same boat, so to speak. Here's the thing. I'm going to be all right. There are lots of people that are not going to be all right, but I'm going to be all right, so I shouldn't complain. In fact, I could probably say I'm rich, even though you might think I'm not so rich. Compared to most of the world, the majority of the world, 99% of the world, I'm incredibly wealthy. And then as far as the United States, even within the United States, we're, we're all doing pretty well, all things considered. And I don't want to minimize the things that you're going through because we're all facing challenges, but let's be honest, we are rich. But when you say I am rich... 
You're saying, I don't need anybody. I have financial independence. When I was a very young person, I met a few people that were selling this idea that you could be financially independent. I'm, I'm, I'm rich and in need of nothing. And that's exactly where they were at. They said, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. So it's not about them being wealthy. It's about them being self-reliant. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, clearly, he's not talking about material things. He's using this as an analogy to say, you think you're rich, but spiritually you're in poverty. Well, physically, yeah, you got some money. You're doing okay. And America, listen, be honest, many people are doing extremely well. A lot of people are doing very, very well. I was looking at the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, and I was like, how much is that guy worth? I, I think it was something like $241 billion. I thought to myself, he can afford Twitter. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't have that kind of money. <laughs> he might have that kind of money and all the problems that come along with it. But when we look at what it says here, you can be incredibly wealthy and spiritually poor. And there are so many people in our world today that are in poverty, spiritually speaking. You know how you know? When someone has billions of dollars and they take their own life, they're spiritually poor. When someone has everything you could imagine and they're miserable and on antidepressants, they're spiritually poor. When someone is so unhappy with life that they have to burn down cities, and that does actually happen. I don't know if you realize that, but there was a time in our country where that was happening, although the media would like us to you know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. When people start burning down their own neighborhoods and attacking people on the subway, innocent people, knocking people out in the street. Oh, I said I wasn't going to talk about those things. Something tells me there's a lot of spiritual poverty in our culture. So, what do we do about that? Oh, we may have a lot of things. We may be a wealthy culture, and indeed we are, but we are spiritually impoverished. We are spiritually poor, and so was the city of Laodicea, or the church in that city especially. They relied on their own strength, on their own resources. They had deceived themselves regarding their lack of spirituality. They thought everything was okay. But they needed Jesus more than they were able to recognize. You know what my prayer is for anyone who doesn't know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him? That you finally realize you need Jesus and you need to have a personal relationship with him. I don't spend or waste my time trying to convince people that they need to come to Jesus and give their life to him as their personal Lord and Savior. I I, I tell them the truth, but if someone's not ready, what are you going to do? What, what, what exactly are you going to accomplish? All you can hope is they wake up one day and realize, I'm not happy with my life. I have all the money in the world and I'm on antidepressants. I, I have all the money I could spend and yet I'm miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What is, it that, what is it about me? Why am I? I don't even like being around me. No wonder my family doesn't like to be around me. You see, when you come to that realization... And then you look over your shoulder at your neighbor, you look at those crazy people. They get up at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday? I can't believe that church has a 9 o'clock service. People say, 9 o'clock? Like, like, no, it's 4 in the morning, actually. I love the, oh, your service is so early. What time do you go to work? Well, 9 o'clock. All right, then. You can tell I'm from Jersey. I grew up across the river right there in East Rutherford. 
So it's hard for me, you know. I was telling Mr. Frank on the way, and you know, God talks to me all the time. I said, you know, I'm sitting out back here, a couple of you guys are coming in late, and I want to say, welcome to the 930 service. But see, that's just wrong. But see, I said it anyway, so pray for me. You know, I just want you to understand that we can rely on God. But not until you want to, and not until you realize you can't rely on yourself. You have to come to that conclusion, and then we can help you to see the truth. But nobody's going to beat you over the head with it, because that's your choice. We respect you enough to honor your choice. But we also love you enough to tell you the truth. So, they needed to repent. That is, they needed to change. That's what the word means. Change. Repent. It means to change. Listen, they needed to repent of their self-sufficiency immediately. Look at this in verse 18. And this is the answer to the person that's spiritually poor. He says, I counsel you. When Jesus tells you, this is what you should do, you think you might want to do it? You know, like, I'll bring my car in. And, you know, have you noticed that your cars now, they're just one big computer on wheels? I hate this. A sensor goes wrong. Only two people in the entire world know about it. Cost you thousands of dollars. I'm done complaining. Anyway, here's what I do know. Your, your vehicle you bring in, you want, you want to get it fixed. And, and, and here's the thing. The expert comes out and says, I know what you need to do. And you're like, finally, somebody who's competent. Finally, somebody who knows what they're doing. Because nowadays, that doesn't happen all that often. And you get counsel, and you're like, this is what you need to do. Like this old house, this is what you need to do. And you're like, oh, thank God, someone's telling me what I need to do. Here's what you need to do. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve, medicine, to put on your eyes so you can see. I love the language because it's so apropos for this group of people. You see, as he encourages them to do the right thing, to repent, he tells them, you lack gold. They might say, I got more gold than you can imagine. Yeah, I'm not talking about that gold. See, in the scriptures, gold is a symbol of divine righteousness. It symbolizes God's rightness. And you can receive that from God. You don't have that righteousness, but you can receive it from God. It's true spiritual riches. He says you need true spiritual riches, true gold, not the gold you have in your safe, not the wealth you have in your IRAs or your 401ks, or actually now they're like one and a half OKs. So here's the thing. I, I, I can't say this enough. You lack gold. You lack what's important, divine righteousness, Christ's nature, the true spiritual riches, and you lack white clothes. What's white clothes? In the scriptures, white clothes represent Christ's righteousness. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Fancy word. It means Christ is righteousness, and he takes that righteousness off like a, like a robe and gives it to you. And you put it on. It's not yours, but you get to wear it. It's Christ's righteousness given to you. And they had all this clothing in the city. They were well known for their clothing. And yet, he says, you need clothes. Are you kidding me? Look at me. I got 12 suits. Yeah, but you need the righteousness that only I can give you, Christ would say. And then they thought, hey, we got the best eyesight in the world. We got this medicine 
This powder, you, know, you put it in your eyes, and everybody here, all of our eyes are good. We don't have glaucoma. We, we don't have issues with cataracts. You know, we're, we're good. We can see clearly. I got 20-20 vision. And he says, you know, you can't see a thing. You're blind. Well, how could you say that? No, you're blind. Why are you blind? You need to take medicine and put it on your eyes. But that's what we do here in Laodicea. No, no, no. You're missing the point. You can't see. You need to put some kind of a salve on your eyes so you can. What is that salve? The Holy Spirit who's going to give you the ability to see what I'm trying to share with you today, what what the Word of God is teaching us. And you're thinking, I don't see it. Well, you need that medicine on your eyes, and I'm trying to give it to you today, trying to pass it out. They were spiritually blind in need of eyesob, the Holy Spirit, to see the truth. And they're one of only two churches of the seven that received no commendation. That is, Jesus didn't really have anything good to say about these people. But he loved them enough to tell tell them the truth. Look at verses 19 through 20. This is so important. When a pastor says something and it goes into your heart and you think, wow, he just he just criticized me. He he just corrected me. I don't think I like this place very much. What time is it? So eight o'clock. Well, not not exactly, but we're close. So so here's the thing. When, When you're thinking that way, this is what Jesus would say. Those whom I love. That means you're loved by God. Those whom I love. I rebuke and discipline. When your parents love you, they, they do that for you. They, you need that. When, when, when you're not loved, when you're abandoned and not loved and corrected by your parents, it's, it's not good. But Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. That is to be honest and repent. So be honest. This is you this morning. Even if you've been coming to this church for 20 years, it's you. It's me. I'm willing to admit that. I think I already have. I have some of these issues. I'm always thinking of nasty things to say. Why is that? It's not just because I'm from the area. But maybe it's because I'm Sicilian. Or maybe it's just because I'm a sinner. We always say, oh, it's because I'm Italian, I'm a Sicilian. How about we're a sinner? How about that's the answer? And you know, you know how I, I know I'm sanctified? 99% of the things I think don't come out of my mouth. That wasn't always true. Anybody who's known me a while knows that to be true. So maybe that describes you. Listen, listen. What we're trying to see here is that Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Change. It's not too late to change. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Eating together was the most intimate thing you could do with people at that time. You sat down to eat together. It still is in many cultures. It is in my culture. So, so what are we seeing here? We're seeing Jesus comfort these people. Oh, he couldn't commend them. He corrected them, but he still comforted them. I hear a lot of correction, but I don't always hear comfort. You know the word for the Holy Spirit is the word that means comforter? Comfort? These people, as bad off as they were, as spiritually blind as they were, as spiritually poor as they were, listen, Jesus loved them. He reassured them of his love. He pleaded with them to change, to repent, to become the people he's called them to be. That's what it means to share the gospel with someone. It's an invitation. You don't have to take it, but I pray you would. And notice, where is he? Is he sitting in the pews of this church? He says, here I am. I stand at the door. Implication, he's outside the church trying to get in. I think that describes a lot of people's hearts. God's at the door. He's also at the door of many churches. They don't let him in. He's not a member. He doesn't tithe 
He doesn't do the things that you have to do to get on the inside of that church. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus shut out of the corporate church, but still lovingly seeking the individual in the church. He's knocking. He hasn't stopped knocking. And the individual within this church of Laodicea is encouraged to invite him in to their life personally. And that's true for us as well today. And Jesus will reward this church should they overcome. How do you overcome? Well, you've got to put on that garment. You've got to put that medicine on your eyes to see. You've got to put on that garment. You've got to buy the gold that matters. That is, you need Jesus. And look what it says here in verses 21 through 22. To him who overcomes, I will give the right. Now, what, 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 was, the, what was the word? The people's rights. That's what Laodicea means. And he says, you want rights? To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear? Do you have the ability to hear? Do you have the ability to understand? Because if you do, the Lord would speak to you today. Here's what I do know. I do know that Jesus rewards anyone who comes to him. He blesses them, and he would reward this church with the right to sit with him. Have you ever gone to a a gathering, maybe a wedding or some type of gathering, where they don't really have assigned seating? And Jesus talked about this in the synagogue. You know, you go and you you see the table, and you're like, oh, that looks like a good place to sit. And you sit down, and the waiter or somebody from the family has to come and say, ah, this is actually where the family's sitting. Get, Get out. How do you feel? Not good. Not good, right? Um, you're like, oh, that's right. I'm just like the neighbor. Uh, yeah. Here's the thing, though. Here's the truth. Jesus says, no, you sit up here with me. It, it's meant to show you something about the heart of God. As an overcomer, in his power and authority, you can sit in the very place of God. Wow. That's better than the head table. Through Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that's what it means to sit with him. And Jesus actually grants us, those of us who have made him our personal Lord and Savior, the right to co-reign with him victoriously for all eternity. The scriptures make this abundantly clear. So, this church had problems. But you know, there's at least a handful of ways to interpret this letter. One of the ways is that it was written to a group of people in the first century. That church is long gone. The city's in ruins. It was applicable to them, but it's also applicable to others. It's applicable to us. We've seen that already. But wait a minute. You know, prophetically speaking, we've seen that each of these seven letters speak of a time in church history. And I think it's pretty obvious that the church of Laodicea, at least the letter that speaks to this church, speaks to a church in the time period in which we live. In fact, They call it the scientific church. The scientific church. It started in around 1900, so a little over 100 years ago, actually. And it continues to the present time. And in the scientific church, which describes a time period in church history, the authority of God and his word was questioned. They began to deny God's authority in the church in favor of their own rights. Science and reason took the place of conscience and reverence. And soon evolution explained away the so-called creation myth. Man became the center of his scientific universe, and God became a fairy tale for the simple during the time in which we live. Some of you have been alive for most of this time period. 
So you know what I'm talking about. You remember a time where everyone went to church. Churches during this time period have become indifferent toward, toward their work for God. They've rejected spiritual insight afforded by the Holy Spirit. They deceive themselves into thinking that they are spiritual and don't need anything. They don't need to be spiritual, maybe. Or they think they are. But in their scientific, intellectual, and industrial prosperity, they've become self-sufficient. They've been relying on themselves. One of the problems we have is when we rely on ourselves, we don't look to God. And so what does God do in his love? He disciplines us. He takes things away. And we start to say, how am I going to get through this? And then some crazy preacher on a Sunday morning tells you the answer. And you think, oh, I have a choice. Yeah, you have a choice. You can rely on God. But they became indifferent to God. <clears throat> and just like the church of Laodicea, Jesus is, has ultimately been pushed outside of the church today. Oh, he still loves those wayward ones. He, he, he loves them with rebuke and discipline, but he still loves those who seek to know God, even if they are spiritually poor. And he'll plead with anyone who will listen to open their heart and let him into their lives. I mean, these men still seek authority over their own lives through knowledge and prosperity, and yet God still wants them for himself. That shows you the heart of God. The precious truths that they seek can only be found in Christ. And he's told them that, and he's told us that. And another thing I need to say, another way to look at this letter, is it's not just about the first century church, and it's not just about the church of the 1900s into the time in which we live. It speaks to any church at any time, generally called the apostate church. It's a fancy word. It means false church. The apostate church has an earthly perspective in the world. They profess to know great things. They don't need anything, but they're spiritually blind. And they're basically disinterested in the person of Jesus Christ or serving him. Does this describe churches we know of today? Oh, yeah, sure, it does. Churches like this rule over themselves, and therefore they fool themselves. They reject Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And as we close, somebody said amen, right? No. As we close, remember that this also speaks of an individual. See, churches are made up of people, whether it's the first century or in the 1900s or today, and therefore the characteristics of these churches speak to the characteristics of people. And I want to leave you with this. In Matthew's Gospel, excuse me, Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, we read of the kind of person that would have attended the church of Laodicea or would have been a part of the scientific church movement or perhaps attends an apostate church. Here's what we read. Jesus speaks very clearly about this, and I call this rich fool syndrome. Rich fool syndrome. I hope you don't have it. Oh, I hope you're rich. I just hope you're not foolish. Rich fool syndrome. Chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself... You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. 
Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we don't desire to be foolish. We desire to have our needs met in you, and we thank you that you meet our needs. But Lord, we ask now that those of us who've known you for some time, those of us who who have been maybe just being a little self-reliant or too self-reliant, those of us who think we're better off than we are, when if we're honest with ourselves, we're not doing so great spiritually. And those of us who've never even considered these things here this morning who think, you know, that describes me. I want to be a a more spiritual person. I want to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I never really thought about it, but I need that. I knew there was something lacking in my life. I didn't know what, but now I do know. I pray for the hearts that are here today that want to reach out and ask God to bless them and reward them and provide them with all the blessings that this life can, can give them, but that, that you would will to give them, but, but also those of eternity, where they would spend eternity with you on your throne, in your presence, and not separated from you for all eternity in hell. Oh, Lord God, we have all sinned against you. There's not one here that's righteous, and therefore we ask that you'd give us that white robe, that you'd give us that gold refined in the fire, that you'd give us that medicine on our eyes to see, and that you'd call to our hearts, and that we would hear your voice even now, in this place, calling us as you knock on the door of our hearts. May we open and respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.